The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good evening. Uh, well, I recognize a number of people. Uh, this is the third Thursday in our five-week series, so we're in the middle, which is a series on an intro and trying to do a pretty thorough overview of Buddhist teachings. Tonight we will mostly focus on the Eightfold Path, so we're going to continue from last week. But I want to begin with, there's so many other, you know, we're picking some main pieces and you can't do everything. I want to just spend a few minutes on a, a, a huge topic which is called Three Refuges and uh, just say a little bit about that. And I think it will be a good way to tie into what we've been doing in the past two weeks. So when we think of the word refuge, what are, what's a refuge? It's just a place of safety, uh, protection, place where your well-being, a place to go to where you're okay. And most, maybe all of us as human beings, where is it that we look, how is it we look in the world to be okay? What mo and it's not a judgment, it's just looking at what it is to be a human being. Well, what is it that we're all doing? We're, we're, whether we're conscious of it or not, we're trying to aim our lives in a certain way. We want to set up certain conditions, the situations that we want in life, and we want to avoid the kind of situations we don't want, right? We want to be okay. We're looking for our refuge in having our lives be okay. In other words, in setting up the, the, con the conditions or our situations. Yeah, I'm just stating the obvious. We're not going to stop doing that, I hope. <laughs> you want to take care of yourself and your life. And so Dharma teachings are not saying there's something wrong with trying to have your life look like you want it to look. Have the world be how you want it to be. That's okay, except for one thing. The first week, two weeks ago, we, we talked about what were called the three characteristics of all experience, or sometimes called the three characteristics of existence. So we won't go back through it in, in much detail, except just to name, some of you weren't here. This is really, the Buddha is asking us to take a look at the situation we find ourselves in, in this world as human beings. And if we look around and we really pay attention, these, there are three aspects that really mark any experience. They mark our own, ourselves, the world, and anything we can experience, which are called impermanence. The second, we usually use the word suffering. I don't like that word so much. And the third is this sticky one of no self. So we spent some time talking about that. And what we find, what we said is, if you look around, you'll see, and you don't have to look very hard, the first one on impermanence is basically saying that there is nothing that lasts, right? Everything, every experience is destined to change at some point. So we all know this. And we talked about how we, we may, we don't often think about it that much, but um, if you're a Dharma practitioner, it, it, you hear it a lot, and we're encouraged to think about it a lot. It's not meant to have us throw away our lives or push away anything, but just to be aware that, that the reason looking for our refuge in external conditions is not such a, a reliable place to look is because even if you could get everything you wanted perfectly, it would, it would be great, actually, <laughs> while it lasts but nothing lasts forever. So all the Dharma teachings are saying is storing up or looking for our well-being only in, in circumstances or in having certain experiences and not having other experiences. If that's our only strategy, it can only go so far. It's not denying that it can bring happiness and a sense of relief and well-being and all that, 
but it's not ultimately going to solve our problem because it doesn't last. And, or if nothing else, you know, we don't last forever, right? So it's just having us take a look at that. So it puts things in a different perspective. Um, and the second of those characteristics that we talked about, which is normally translated as suffering, but we all know that um, life is not all suffering. I'm, you know, depending on our life circumstance, for any one of us, in any given moment or time and period in our lives, we may be going through more difficulties and suffering and not have much happiness, or we may be going through times where, you know, the suffering part's not as much, and it's, things are going pretty well or great. And it goes back and forth for most, most of us, and it just varies for each of us. But certainly, pain and suffering is a part of life, and every one of us knows that. Sometimes I've, I don't do this often, but I've off, I have started Dharma talks by saying, um, good evening and welcome my fellow sufferers. <laughs> Just to highlight that. Of course, that's, that's actually maybe is, that's only half the story because I hope we're also fellow experiencers of happiness and joy also. A better for this Pali word dukkha, which is the one that's translated as suffering, and when people think the Buddha said life is suffering, he actually said life is dukkha. A better translation or understanding of dukkha is that it includes suffering, but a broader definition is, is that there's an, in the ultimate sense, there's an unreliable aspect to life that, even, you know, we're all trying our best. And sometimes you get what you want, and sometimes you don't. And, you know, what we, how much control do we have, you know? And so it's, it's that life has a way of taking its own course. You know, I was just thinking this week with the World Series, it was such a, and the election, they were two great examples. Um, so depending on uh, if you lived in, is it, I don't know where the Texas Rangers, are they in Dallas, I think? or Depending on if you live in Texas or if you live in San Francisco, you may not care, but I mean, for those who do, uh, you know, you're, you're ecstatically happy or despondent, right? Depending on your politics, two years ago, Obama came in, and I don't, I'm not saying, I'm not, uh, my point here is not whose politics is right or wrong, but I'm just using it as an example. Um, you know, depending on your politics, two years ago, at this time, you might have been ecstatic, right? The bad old days of those terrible old Republicans is over and it's a new era. And then if you're in, fall in that camp, um, maybe you're not feeling so great these, today, right? Or it could be the flip side, right? So we, this, I'm just using an example. Life is like this. And we can look into our personal lives and see the same is true. And so we're not going to deny our humanity. We don't become numb and not be affected and are so just removed or have transcended everything that, that nothing touches us. That's not what it's talking about. But it's just having us take a look at how much of our well-being or our welfare or our happiness is dependent upon having to have certain experiences and definitely not having other things happen. And so when we start to look at what we talk about taking these three refuges, which I haven't named them yet, it's asking us to take a shift in at least part of how we look for our refuge in happiness. Right? If our, if our refuge is only in circumstances, it's either suffering or a setup for suffering. Dharma is asking us to pay attention not only to what, what is the experience that we're having, but how are we relating to whatever's happening? And can we start to find that well-being in the manner in which we relate to whatever's happening, not only just in what the experience itself is? And that's a real shift for many of us. And so this idea of, of these three refuges, I did, the third refuges was the one about uh, no self, and we spent a lot of time on that. Um, 
and I'll just name for those of you who weren't here, it, it, it does not mean that we don't exist and when you realize no self, you kind of go poof and disappear. It's not what it's saying. It's saying look at the nature of ourselves. We're not going to get into it too much tonight, but it was basically seeing that we're changing processes. We're not, we're not fixed entities. If you look deeply into the nature of our minds and bodies, it's changing processes. It's, it's also impermanent, basically, and inherently unreliable. Right? Our own minds and bodies. I woke up this morning, and there's this place on my arm here. It's just hurting for no apparent reason. It just, you know, these things happen, right? So uh, stuff like that. As, as you get some of you are old, I'm older than, I think most people here, some of you younger, some, those of you younger, you, you, you'll see it happens more and more. <laughs> right? It just keeps going, you know. Um, you know, I'm losing hair where I wanted it and it's starting to grow out the places where I, where I don't want it. <laughs> so our minds, our bodies, they're changing processes. If I'm clinging to my youth, um, it's a setup for suffering. So this idea of, that, that was taking a look sort of at our situation, the three characteristics. And then we spent time looking at the Four Noble Truths, which is saying the truth of suffering that, that comes through clinging, that because things change and there's an inherently unreliable aspect to life, doesn't mean you'll never get what you want, but you're going to get what you get. If we cling, which means we kind of contract around it, we create a problem with what's happening, it creates suffering. And the second noble truth was why do we cling? It's because of craving. Which means, by craving we mean we want to hold on to pleasant experiences and push away unpleasant. So this is a very quick whirlwind through what we slowed down and spent a lot of time on the last two sessions. And um, I think these are all being posted on the web. They're being recorded. So you could go and, if you want to listen to the last two weeks and, and uh, spend some time to really delve into what I'm saying very quickly here. The three refuges, then, are refuges in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So what we mean by taking refuge in the Buddha, basically, is the Buddha was a historical figure who lived, he was a human being, he had his own suffering, and he came to some deep awakening or realization, or sometimes we say enlightenment, so that there is, it was really pointing to what's possible for human beings. So it can, if for some people that, that's a real inspiration, a refuge. Sometimes people take, that's the traditional way of thinking of it, sometimes people take the, ref, the refuge in the Buddha to be just the word bud, the bud, it just means awakened one, awake. So just in, in wakefulness itself could be a fine way if you wanted to take refuge. Uh, refuge in the Dharma, the Dharma has a number of meanings. Um, good way to think of it is just all these teachings. Sometimes Dharma is meant to be the truth of things, the way of things. And then there's some other meanings. And then the Sangha is the community of fellow practitioners. Here, we're Sangha here. Because you, we need support of like-minded people, right? If you're really into baseball and the Giants, where did you want to be on? You want to be down with your buddies or at the sports bar or wherever they're hanging out, right? That's what supports that. If you're into... If you want to deepen in Dharma, we want to be around like-minded people too. So that's this refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. That is a lifetime worth of exploration on these refuges. So taking these 10 minutes does not do it justice. But I just wanted to have mentioned that sometimes these three refuges are called the three jewels or the three gems. But just remember that it's this idea of where do we look in ourselves and in life for our welfare and well-being? That's the question that's being asked. And in addition to taking care, I'm just repeating, but to, to make the point, in addition to taking care of our outer circumstances, 
we want to tend to how we relate, cultivate the quality of how we are able to, can we find a place of freedom or happiness in the midst of the fact that life is uncertain and things change and you only have so much control and there is suffering in life. In the midst of the human condition and the situation we find ourselves in. Can we find a more reliable place of, we call it, use the word, that's freedom, or a place of wakefulness or ability to relate to our lives so we're not just jerked around by circumstances. And we come to this cliche, uh, it's a cliche because it said so much, of inner peace. There are two kinds of inner peace. One is where you actually just feel peaceful. There's no difficulties, the body's at ease, the mind is relaxed and spacious, the heart is open. That's a, that is a place of inner peace, and it's important, and we talk about that a lot. And then there's another place of inner peace that's even in the midst of all the changes that happen in us where some, the body doesn't always feel good. And sometimes the mind is still and quiet and sometimes it's stirred up and there's a lot going on. And sometimes we're scared or anxious or worried or all these different things can happen. And underneath that, is there a place that can, that can rest at peace and allow us to just have our experience? So this is a different kind of refuge. So this kind of segues into what we were going to spend the, the rest of our time on tonight on the Eightfold Path. So if someone were to say to you, you know, life is uncertain, it goes its own ways, things are impermanent, there's a suffering quality to life, don't cling. Just find the place of resting at peace in the midst of the way things are. You may think, well, that sounds good. When you go to put it into practice, you may find that it's not so easy, that you can't do it. I mean, you might be able to do it in a moment, but all it takes is the right circumstance or the right thing or experience to come rolling around again, and we're just caught. This is why we need practices to train the mind. And so the Eightfold Path is really laying out the path of how can we, how can we start are there attitudes, are there trainings, are there things we can start to incorporate to support us to find this deeper place of welfare and refuge? Where we're not just led around by our desires and led around by external circumstances, at the mercy of just the way the winds of life happen to blow. Is there a way out? So tonight we'll talk about the Eightfold Path and then um, the last two weeks even get much more specific into there's so many different practices out there, meditative and other kind of practices. So the Eightfold Path is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. First Noble Truth was the truth of suffering. The second, the cause of suffering, craving. The third, that there's an end to that. And then the fourth is the path leading to this, to the cessation or ending of suffering. So I'm going to name these eight elements. And um, you'll notice that each of the eight begin with the word right. So, for example, there's, you might have heard things like right livelihood, right speech, that those are from the Eightfold Path. Well, this word right, we want to make sure we understand it properly. We should not think of it as with a judgmental right or wrong, but we should think about it as a good way to really to, to think of it as wise and skillful. It's a better translation. About a century ago, um, some British uh, anthropologists and translators used the word right. We're kind of stuck with it because everybody uses it but um, it can have some weird connotations for people. What it really means is what's going to be most wise and skillful and supportive in heading where you want to head. That's, but I'll say right, but just understand what we mean. So let me just name them real, go through the list, and then we'll spend a few minutes on each of them. And 
if you don't remember it or memorize them, it's okay. You'll hear these over and over many, many times um, by hanging around, you know, groups like places like this. So the first is called, um, normally translated as right view, sometimes as right understanding. The second is right intention or sometimes right thought. Next is right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and finally right concentration. Those are the eight. It's the eightfold path. Sometimes uh, uh, it's divided into three sections. The first two, right view or right understanding and the right intention or right thought, are considered the wisdom section. And then the next three, right speech, right action, right livelihood, are called the morality section because they deal with how you live and act. And then the last three, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, are sometimes called the meditation section. So the first right view, um, there's a couple of ways you can think of it. It's, it's sometimes, it's basically, I think, traditionally thought of as having a basic understanding of the Four Noble Truths. What, we were, what we've actually were talking about, these three characteristics and these Four Noble Truths, understanding really all of that. Um, a simple way to think of right view, you don't have to have it perfectly. You know, when we've actualized these understandings, maybe that's what people mean by enlightenment. So we have to have some level of understanding. The way I like to think of it is, you know, if I'm heading, I don't know, if I want to head north, I don't have to always be perfectly heading north or know exactly but I don't want to be going south. You know, and they even say airplanes that are, you know, they're never exactly on course. I don't really know if it works this way, but this is what you'll hear. They're always making slight corrections. So it doesn't have to be perfect, but we have to have a basic idea of where we want to head, what these teachings are about, right? So that's the basic way to understand right view or thinking of an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Basic understanding of Dharma teachings the goals, the purposes, what we're doing. Another piece of right view, and I don't know if I have time tonight, so I think I'm going to just bookmark this for next time. We haven't said anything here about karma, and we haven't said anything tonight about what's called conditionality, that our actions have effects, and that the states of our own minds and hearts come about by really the habits of our minds and hearts. We use the word conditionality. It's actually a big Dharma uh, topic, and I'm going to say a little more next time about that. But that would be a right view. Let's just say understanding that our actions have consequences. Understanding that in whatever way we apply our, ourselves, those are, that's what gets strengthened in our minds. Have you ever tried to change a habit? If you have, you know that in the beginning, while the habit's strong, it's tough. And you have to kind of really work it and fight it. Over time, when, it, when the patterns in our minds, the habit starts to shift, either starts to lose its power just through repetition and working, and, or maybe it gets replaced with other kind of patterns in the mind, you don't have to work it so hard, and eventually it just becomes a trait you're not having to it's just you're not trying to work it anymore and it's it's easy so those are examples of how we condition our minds if we want to have more loving and compassionate hearts we need to tend to that and there's practices we can do to strengthen having loving and compassionate hearts and the more we do it 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 those strengthen in us if we 
Uh, it doesn't mean we can't be human beings and never be grouchy or that we're never going to have ill will in our minds or anything like that. If so, we'd all be in big trouble. Right? We start right where we're at, we're fine. it's fine. But if we're always following the, the negative or the difficult conditioning of our minds, it just keeps strengthening that. So this is this idea of conditioning. So we want to understand that. So that's right view. Second, then, is what's called right thought or right understanding. I'm, I'm sorry, right thought or right intention. So we, if we have this right view, if we, if we reflect on Dharma teachings that say, well, let me look into my own life. Um, it's, is it really true that um, is this teachings of, of impermanence? Is it really true that there's this unreliable or unsatisfactory or sometimes we'll say a suffering in, li- in my life? Not to say that we never have happiness. And we really reflect on this. And is it, do I really want to start heading in a direction that the Buddha was talking about of a, of a deeper place of happiness and freedom? Then this next piece is right thought or right intention. Is Just basically think of it as that's that setting the intention, directing where, where we want to aim ourselves. It starts with this right view or right understanding and then we actually have to then aim ourselves. You actually had to have an intention to come show up at a group like this or you wouldn't have done it, right? That's an example. That, was, that came out of, a, of an intention. It may not have been conscious. Okay. So, so those first two, I'm going to leave at that for, for now. That's the basic idea. And then out of this wise and skillful or right under, view or understanding and then right intention, it starts to, we start to then pay attention to the qualities of how we live and speak and act. And this is this next group of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So right speech um, is talked about in many, many ways, but um, there are four aspects to what are considered right speech. And as I say these, many people find right speech is it's, it's an ever subtler progression it's not that you're going to get it perfect right now, right? So let me just feel or out how it, how it is for you when you hear these and then think about your own speech and you know none of us are perfect, but um, how it maps up against these four because right speech needs to have all four of these present. So it, first of all, it needs to be truthful. Okay? So that's probably, we could all, probably the first thing many of us would say, However, just because something's honest, it could be quite harmful. Right? It's not helpful, so it needs to be truthful. Second thing, it needs to actually be helpful. The third is it needs to be timely at the right time. And so a lot of these are just, it's, sometimes it's not clear. So we just it's not about getting it perfectly right. It's about bringing awareness to the process and just being as mindful and clear about making these choices as we can rather than just being on automatic pilot and reactive. So truthful. So that means even little white lies actually aren't right speech, right? If you're going to say what we call little white lies, um, and I think everybody, from what I understand, I don't know if you know, people seem to do that, um, better that we're aware and at least making a conscious choice than just caught up in habitual. At least we know we're saying, okay, I'm doing it. I'm not trying to recommend it. I'm just saying we start to bring awareness to what's happening. Why would I be, not be honest here? What, 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 what would stop me from that? Maybe you don't want to be viewed in a certain way, or it could be many, many things that could fuel that. So we want to really look and see. It can bring up a lot just looking at whether we're being honest or not. Just that first of these four aspects of right speech can bring up so much. There's a lot to work with there. Um, If it's helpful or not. What that means is, before I even get into the other two, what that means is, if something happens, and if you want to take on the practice of right speech, you really want to take it seriously, then... um, 
when whatever it is happens in your life and you really want to tell that person whatever and the feeling is really strong, if that ever were to happen to you? What, what right speech is asking us to do is like, okay, let's hold on a second. Is what I'm about to say honest? Is it helpful? Is it the other two are, it needs to be at the right time? And it needs, the fourth is it needs to be kind and not harsh. Right? So if my wife does something and I'm irritated, and really inside, you know, I'm thinking whatever, um, you know, you know, that's the, so my wife and I have been married a long time, so she's had lots of opportunities to, uh, right, <laughs> to irritate me. <laughs> we, I'm trying to be a little humorous. We have a great marriage, but, um, uh, you know, and if that's the 10,000th time and she knows and I've told her and why does she keep whatever and I'm going to, wait a minute. Wouldn't it be better? I, and I might have those feelings. Wouldn't it be better? Okay, wait, hold on a second. I can go tell her that later. I don't have to tell her that right now. What I'll do is I'll just uh, take some time, process myself, make sure I'm coming from a place that's loving, that's kind. And then later, if I still feel like there's something I need to say, first of all, oftentimes when I do that, whatever it was I need to say, I don't need to say anything. Or... um, I might say something in a way that's rather than, you know, God darn it, you know, it might be more like, you know, um, you know, I felt frustrated when this happened and, you know, I'd really like for this and, you know, I can just communicate in a way that's useful. So we need to reflect on these four. That's right speech. Um, that could be a whole practice of just paying attention to right speech. That'd be uh, a t- time, maybe a whole lifetime a well spent. Right? And what many most people find is it just it gets subtler and subtler. Okay, so right speech. Right action. What right action we can generally think of as what are called living by a pre there's this list of precepts, five precepts for lay people. For monastics in our tradition there is a list of, um, I think it's 227 rules that they live by that, that really uh, govern all aspects of life. But the right five precepts, and we'll just have time to touch on them briefly for right action. It actually includes right speech. Um, um, it means um, the first is non-harming in general. Traditionally, it's not killing, but really we expand that to non-harming. Uh, maybe we might spend a little time on it, but just the precepts is also really a big topic in a lifetime. So we're just mentioning, you know, what are all the ways that non-harming, that harming can manifest in non-harming. And some people take that meaning just to not kill or, you know, fight, but it also might really, the, 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 the flip side of it, rather than saying not doing something, you can take it in a positive say of, of living in a way that's, that's kind and caring and loving and, you know, we don't use, anyway, so that, that's one way to think, anyway, non-harming. Second is, te- is not, traditionally is not stealing, but really what it means is, is not taking things that's not ours. It means if you come into a place like this and you leave your purse by your spot and then you get up to go away to the bathroom and you come back, nobody's going to have still, stolen your purse. You know, what would it be like if the whole world operated that way? And then some people take that, which is more of a modern interpretation, beyond not just non-stealing or not taking that which we... but, but not using more than we need and if we start to tend to how we use natural resources and things like that. So non-harming, non-stealing, we'll call it. The third around sexuality for lay people basically means being wise and careful, not causing harm and suffering around this powerful, powerful energy of sexuality. And we could say a lot about it, but I'll just say, how many times do we see people in the news 
I mean, we can look into our own lives, but also just in the news who seem to have it all. You know, you look at Tiger Woods and, you know, he's rich, he's famous, everybody loved him. He had an attractive wife who seemed to be a nice person too. And, and that whatever it was about that powerful energy of sexuality, we have to be very respectful, of, I think, of, of the power of sexual energy. Very respectful because it's powerful. <laughs> and we probably all know, many of us, most of us have, you know, know the power of it and that, you know, it, it, if we're not tending to what we're doing, uh, we're not careful, we can cause suffering for ourselves and others. That's a precept. So, and it really that goes back to the non-harming. So, Non-killing or non-harming, not stealing, wise and skillful or careful around sexuality. The fourth is right speech, so it comes in again. And the fifth is traditionally is, is, is abstaining from um, intoxicants that can cause heedlessness and remorse. So, I, you know, you have to find your own relationship with, with that one. Um, you know, I'm guessing there's about, I'm thinking there's maybe 35 or 40 people here in the room. You know, just statistically, I know not everybody here abstains from, you know, have, enjoying a wine or whatever. So you have to find your own. For me, I, I, I completely abstain. I don't, I'm, I just don't use any, but it's not this heavy, intense, I just let it go. Um, so you can think about it. We certainly know how much suffering Gets, is caused by abuse of alcohol and drugs in the world and how much destruction. Um, we can look into our own lives and see what our relationship is to it. One person came up to me at once and said, well, what's wrong with having a glass of wine? And my answer was, and other people may have different answers, but my answer was, well, probably isn't any big deal if you have a glass of wine. You know, you have a glass. Actually, red wine is supposed, maybe it's all alcoholic beverages, are supposed to have um, health benefits. A few, couple of years ago, I actually tried to start drinking red wine just, just to get the health benefit. I just couldn't do it. I just, ugh. <laughs> it's just not for me, but for others. So, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. But here's something to think about. Well, I'll actually go further. I will say that I think that for many people there could be real benefits. So if you have a glass of wine, not only the physiological benefits, but for many people I find it's quite relaxing. It can be a stress reliever for people. So I'm not trying to say there's no, no benefit there. Um, you just have to see when you're doing that what I really encourage people to do is just reflect on what do you want your life to be about in the deepest sense or the highest sense? What do you really want your life to be about? And then when we're making choices, just say, is it in service of that or not? Not getting up tight or tense. We want to have a spacious, open sense of how we live our lives. Not get all uptight. And then make your choice. I'll leave it at that. I probably have a more liberal uh, approach than some <laughs> in the Dharma world. We each have to just decide and choose. Okay. Right, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and then right livelihood. And it's basically, there are some lists that are given in the ancient texts against, there's a handful of professions that are you know, like if you're an arms dealer, uh, that would not be right, uh, right livelihood. But basically, for most of us, what we're doing is right livelihood, but we just want to pay attention to what we're doing. You don't have to be out, you know, saving the earth at some nonprofit, you know, in Haiti or something to be doing right livelihood. It's just we all have to do what we have to do in the world. And we, we, it's tending to, for most of us, the qualities that we bring to how to our to our work, what we have to do to, to make a living in the world, which we all have to do. 
And obviously, you know, if you're a drug dealer, um, um, uh, please stop. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So we had the those first two, the wisdom section, right speech, right action, right livelihood, the morality section. And then the last three are called the samadhi section. Uh, samadhi has a number of meanings, concentration or meditation. Uh, to, uh, their right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a little time on right effort. All of next week is going to be, when we talk about meditative practices, are going to be on right mindfulness. And all of the final times are going to be on what's called right concentration. And we're going to look at a, a range of of meditation practices, and we'll also include all of what are called the Brahma-viharas practices on loving-kindness and compassion and all of those kind of practices will come in next week. So right effort, um, I'll say two things about it. One way it's defined, you know, everything is broken down. There's these, these numerical lists. There's the Four Noble Truths. We've broken down to the Eightfold Path. Then each of these have their subgroups. So here's right effort, and there's four aspects to that. Um, so we use this word wholesome and unwholesome. Wholesome, any, something is wholesome if it's an action, if it's an attitude of the heart and mind, it's anything that heads us more towards, we could call it the good, or towards, our, towards deeper happiness from a Dharma perspective. If we're learning to open our hearts, to quiet our minds, to live with more wakefulness, less reactivity, equanimity, wisdom, compassion, these are all what we call the wholesome versus the unwholesome, which is what leads to more difficulty and suffering. Right effort is defined as the first of the four is if unwholesome states of the heart and mind have arisen, acting, do, take, doing what's necessary to get rid of those, to have those subside or put aside. The second right effort is, or the way that right effort manifests is, acting in ways that prevent the unwholesome from arising. And these are very general, broad statements. We could give a lot of examples, but I'm not going to get into that too much now. Um, we're going to have some Q&A time in a minute, and if that happens to come up, we could name a few examples. I'll just give one. Um, I don't know why I'm using political examples. They're just popping in my head tonight. <laughs> If there's a particular TV or radio political show that makes your blood boil, it may be wise and skillful not to watch that show. I'm not talking about burying our heads in the sand. Not at all. Dharma teachings and practice are about the opposite, about engaging deeply in, in the world and in our lives. But doing it from a place of clarity and instead of reactivity, responsiveness. You know, there's a difference between how being responsive in a situation and being reactive. So that would be an example. If you can be with, and maybe you want to hear what you know, other people, political views other than your own are saying, that's fine, and maybe it's important to do, and read other, a wide spectrum of journals or whatever, fine. That's bringing a sense of equanimity, and then you can be responsive. But if you're just going crazy and, and getting angry and, and everything, actually you could take it on to work with it then. And that would be wise and skillful. So my, my analogy doesn't completely hold up. But if you're just going crazy, this is just, I'm just trying to come up with some example of it. Maybe it would serve me better to just, you know what, I just don't need to turn that on. Because all I do is I'm more fearful and I'm, or whatever. Maybe you come back to it later when you're able to be with it more present. That would just be, I don't know, an example of, of making choices so that 
potential unwholesome states don't arise. You know, when Sarah Palin comes on the news, and my apologies to all of you conservatives out there, uh, I just happen to be a, a, a liberal or progressive, but um, so you can just, I don't know, you plug in Clinton and then the analogy will work for you. Um, you know, when Palin comes on, just turn it off. <laughs> Until I put her picture on my altar. One of the best tips my wife ever told me. Because I was struggling. I just wasn't finding the equanimity and the peace. And I have a, I have a real uh, aspiration to live in a way so that my heart never closes off to any living beings. That's an aspiration I have. So, here's the situation. Hmm, what's happening? Ah, heart's closing off. <laughs> really closing off. So the first thing is, what's, what's wise and skillful? Well, I need to just not go there. Then it's like, well, wait a minute. No. I'm a Dharma teacher. <laughs> Cut out the picture from the magazine. Put it right there. May you be happy. May you, just as I wish to be happy, may you be, you know. So we have to find for each of us, right, what's wise and skillful. Then, so those are two for unwholesome states. For wholesome states, generating, if, if there are unarisen unwholesome states of the heart and mind, finding ways to, to actively cultivate them, and then if wholesome states are, there, are present, keep sustaining them. So that's what we call right effort. But it doesn't give us a lot of details. And that's what we'll be getting in. That's why there's more and more detailed practices that we're getting into more than the last two Thursdays. More specific, what are the practices that will uh, help us let go of the unwholesome and strengthen the wholesome? Me the meditation practices are an example. Loving kindness and compassion meditations are many, many practices we'll, we'll talk about. Many of you are familiar with many of these. Here's another way I think about uh, right effort. Right effort is often talked about, is also often talked about as having the right amount of effort. So when you're meditating, sometimes we need to we need to put in the effort, right? We're just trying to do something simple, like just sit here quietly and be present with your experience. And we can all see how that's not always so easy. It's amazing, right? You just come here, we, we just sit here silently, get in any posture you want. Just make yourself comfortable. You can lie down if you need to, if your back hurts. Take care of yourself. And then of course, maybe stay with your breathing or people are doing other practices and just be present with whatever's happening in your experience. You don't even have to make anything happen. We just want to be present with it. Not always so easy. It's, it's astounding. There's a lot of wisdom right there when we start to realize how out of control our minds are. That's the first step towards aiming in another direction. So um, we can sit to meditate and we need to put in, we, if we put too much effort in, we get too tense and tight or overstriving and then maybe we need to back off. If we put not enough effort, then we can stop trying and we get, we space out, we're lazy and maybe we need to ratchet the effort up. So how much effort is the right balance is going to change from moment to moment, from day to day for each of us. So it's the art, part of the art of meditation is learning what the sweet spot is in any moment. And stay tuned into that. And with practice, it just becomes more and more naturally apparent each moment. And then it kind of unfolds in its own way. Um, that's just through the, through the training. So those are some things, ways to think about right effort. So it's taking the right kinds of effort, doing the right kinds of things, and bringing the right degree, degree of effort we put into it. So the last two pieces of the Eightfold Path, the right mindfulness and the right concentration, um, get talked about a lot. And... Um, yeah, I think I'd like to just, we'll, we'll pick up with that next time. 
when we start to open up in more details of, of different ways of practicing. So what I'd like to do right now then is we have a few minutes to see if there are any, if you have, if anyone has any question or maybe you have a comment or anything. And I think they're going to pass the mic around. Uh, I was, I was struck. I was struck by uh, uh, right speech, and uh, where uh, it's skillful not to just be in the moment and blurt out whatever you say. And often I think of Buddhism as the closer you are to in the moment, the better off you are. Well, you may have to be keep your mind in the moment and recognize what's happening in your mind, but often in actions you've got to consider what the karma will eventually be, and that may take time. So, it, uh, so my understanding then is that uh, we should wait often yeah. before we take a skillful yeah. action, because yeah. we don't know what skillful action yeah, is. Yeah, and, and I appreciate what you're saying, and that's true. And of course, there may be times when it is clear to us that you don't have to wait, and, and you just naturally respond in the way, and, and that's good. So there will be those times, of course, but there's plenty of times when exactly what you're saying is true. And um, by the way, that reminds me when you say that about, you say you don't know what the karma is going to be. In the world in, in the times in which the Buddha grew up, the understanding of the word karma and kind of more coming out of the Hindu orient, uh, tradition, the, the Vedantic understanding was the word karma meant action. And the Buddha redefined it to mean not the action, volition. It's what's behind the action. So how we act is less important. I mean, obviously what we do is important, but it's what our intention is behind it uh, is where Buddhism really pays a lot of attention. So if we put, the more we're able to tend to that, which is why we need to strengthen our mindfulness and our concentration, all these things we'll be talking about the next two weeks, the actual practices, because they, they have so many benefits about a lot of it is learning how to calm ourselves and be more centered, but also there's the wakefulness part. So we, we just know what's happening. We're clear and aware more and more uh, of what's needed, what's happening, what the best approach is. Um, so that's the fruit of the practices. And, you know, we do the best we can. And even with the best intention, there very well may be times when well, okay, we didn't get at that. We didn't do so great. <laughs> All right, we did the best we can. Sometimes we're going to get caught again. We, we know that we're not perfect, and then we pick ourselves up and continue on. So anyway, so thank you, Mike. Uh, yes, just one moment. I think they're going to bring a mic over. Can you say something about resistance? Yeah, well, um, can you say a little more about well, what... You know, you can, you can have the focus of wanting to use right speech or um, to uh, have the right viewpoint, but before you know it, before you're aware of it, you're into some sort of reactive response. Right. Or um, it's, it's hard to... I just uh, I just know that there's a lot. I, I can still remember who did what to me, you know, yeah. and I'm really working on forgiveness and yeah. letting it go, but it seems to come up and up and up. Yeah, but all you're pointing to is, you know, all of us have our main top ten patterns, if you will. There's more than that, but yeah, right. So you're just naming one of yours, which is, their tent that you call it resistance, but forgiveness. Um, I'm guessing it's not just for others, but um, if if you have a mind that tends to do that, it, it, I'm sure it'll take any object. It'll it, it probably will land right back on yourself too, right? You need to learn about forgiveness for yourself. I'm guessing. No, well, I was I was way into my 60s before I learned that I had to love myself. Yeah, so. I'm, you know, it sounds like, I, I could say a few things, but it sounds like you already have a lot of wisdom around it. It sounds like what you're saying is, is just the patterns are still there strongly and you're still having to work with them. So I don't know what magically is going to, poof, 
you know, what you're doing is, is you're shifting these conditioned or habitual patterns of the mind. So you're doing the work. Uh, a couple, just a couple of quick things, though, in general th- that you mentioned. One is, is that we can get caught in, I'll just say negativity or resistance or whatever it is, being unkind towards others and ourselves. When we're not mindful and aware of what's happening, we're on what I call being on automatic pilot. And we just get caught up and it's just a reactive, habitual response. So when that happens, all bets are off because you, you didn't even, you were just caught in it in the moment. You weren't even mindfully aware. So the strengthening of our mindfulness and the strengthening of this last piece, the concentration piece, um, those are so important in the support of everything else we're trying to do. So that more, when we do get lost, it's less deeply and for less amount of time. And we're naturally more present and clear and awake and knowing. Then there's the, then there's the question of when we are knowing what's happening, the force may still be there to act or in a way that's maybe not, you know, maybe we really are aware and you still want to be unkind or for whatever, for example. Now, what's important then is you have to do two things. You either have to bring the intensity of that energy down to where you can work with it, or the intensity of your ability to work with it has to come up. And one thing that can be helpful is having done enough work to get clear on your your own aspirations and intentions. So I use this example with Sarah Palin, right? Um... If, if the force is, is, if there's some negativity arising in the mind, that's the time when we really need to know what our intention is. So you have to look, depending on the situation, what's your real intention? Is it to be kind? Is it, to, and, and does that mean, oh yes, even in this situation with this person, even when I don't want to? You know, you have to know. And then, when you really don't want to and the energy's strong, you got to hold on to that. It's like a stake that's planted deeply in the ground, and you're holding on to it because you need the support and the recollection of your intention. And that could be helpful when the energy is strong. You know, I have a background in psychology, and I've been a psychiatric nurse for almost 30 years, and I learned that it was in some situations it was okay to be angry. And I don't know if that's true anymore. For you or for in general? Um, I'm trying to make up my mind. Well, let me just say this. As far as Dharma teachings are, we're not, I'm certainly not telling you that you can't be a human being, that anger can never arise at someone. At someone. That's fine. It's just what's happening in the moment. So there could be a lot there. There may be some inner knots that need to untangle themselves about what triggers off anger, and maybe that can all get cleared up and released so that we're less angry. So that's a whole piece, sure. And when the heart's more loving and maybe we don't get as angry as much, that's fine. But more importantly is not some should about what's okay to, to have happen or not or how it's okay for us to be. It's more bringing awareness to just what's real and true for us and not being lost in it. And if what's real and true for someone is in a moment they're angry, or if in general they tend to be angry a lot, say, that's just maybe the what the way their minds are patterned. We don't want to make a judgment and beating up on ourselves. We want to just be aware, oh, that's the pattern in my mind. And we need to bring that love and compassion and care to ourselves. And we learn to work with it the best we can. But the starting point is bringing the mindfulness to what's actually happening. And if we know, oh, there's anger arising. We feel it in our body, however, it may be, you know, maybe stomach's contracted or the neck or whatever. Oh, certain thoughts are arising. Then we're aware of what's happening. Then we have some choice how we're going to respond. What's wise action? And this all depends on having some degree of awareness of mindfulness. And we do, last thing I'll say is, we do the best we can. You just do the best you can. Can you do? We can't do more than that. And and not forgetting about the compassion for ourselves, knowing that all of us have times when we we suffer, 
and we create suffering for others, we create suffering for ourselves, and sometimes that letting go around it isn't so easy when the pattern is strong. And so we need a lot of self-compassion too, knowing that you know, we have work to do, that we're human beings. And that we can go from having minds that, that don't know how to be kind towards ourselves, and that mind can come to a great place of love and compassion for ourselves. We're just shifting patterns. Anyway. Um, I think someone else had raised their hand, but we're actually up against the ending time. Uh, matter of fact, we're one minute over. So if you want, well, let's do this. If you want to talk to me, I'm going to hang around a little after. That's fine. And what we'll do is this. I'm going to do a very brief closing. I'm going to do it about two minutes, maybe three minutes. Uh, I'll be very short. And if you really can't wait the two or three minutes and you need to go, please don't feel self-conscious about it. I encourage you to you know, take care of yourself and just go ahead and go. And for those of you who can stay, what I invite you to do, if you're not already doing so, is bring your mindful awareness to connect to the experience in your body. So just connect in and just notice whatever is happening in your body. There may not be much, just a general sense of the body, or you may have a lot of hunger, tiredness. If you've been sitting, maybe it's a little achy, whatever it is for you, pleasant or unpleasant. And also check in with what's going on in your mind, in the states of your heart. Just the whole, your whole experience. And to also pay some attention to not only the experience itself, but how is it that you are relating to whatever's happening? Can there be that place of letting be or accepting or allowing your ears to have your experience? If there's something going on for which you, you really, there is a, you can't let go of a struggle and you, you really can't let that be, then bring some acceptance to that place in you. And you could just stay with that if you want. Or I invite you to take a few moments to, it's really some appreciation for yourself. And I invite you to reflect that you have, every one of us in this room, you have, we have all used our time wisely this evening. That you could have done anything with your time and you chose to come and sit quietly with yourself, meditating, strengthening these qualities of mindfulness, of the concentration, and then spending some time listening to a talk on, on Dharma teachings and reflecting on them yourself. And it's a beautiful thing when, you know, reflecting just for a few moments on your own deepest aspirations or intentions. And perhaps for you, since this is a Dharma center, it may be some version, you, you'll have to pick your own words of, how can I live more deeply or authentically from a place of kindness, and love and compassion, wakefulness, clarity, wisdom, non-reactivity, equanimity, peace. You know, everyone here has your own version of some really what I call wholesome, I, use, I like to say beautiful, but... Uh, um, Intentions, And so we want to make those more conscious. It's not egotistical. It's actually important to reflect on our own goodness. That is in service of the right effort of strengthening the wholesome. And so to perhaps bring some appreciation for yourself, and you may also have some appreciation for others here in the room, to be, you know, what's it like to hang out with a group of 
fellow practitioners, people who are up to what you're up to. And then finally we reflect that we often say it's not, you know, we don't practice for ourselves alone and we'll end with this dedication of merit, but really to reflect that it's actually not possible to practice for yourself alone. You just can't do it. If you free your own heart and mind, it affects even a little bit. It affects everyone you come in contact with, everyone you speak with. If, if your right speech is a little clearer, even a little bit, those interactions are going to be more wholesome and are going to lead to more benefit for yourself and others. So you cannot practice for yourself alone. So we make this more conscious. We offer up, it's called the dedication of merit. We say, may the fruits of all our good actions, our good efforts, sometimes we say merit, let us offer it up. May it be for the benefit and for the liberation of all beings. May all beings be happy, be well, be safe, be peaceful. May all beings everywhere come to an end of suffering. 